Why aren't you doing those things today? If they're so important to you, it's the number one thing that you would do within the one day that you have left to live. Why aren't you doing those things today? Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff, who are the co-authors of the best-selling book, Experiential Billionaire, Build a Life Rich in Experiences and Die with No Regrets. The two of you are also self-proclaimed experiential guinea pigs. And this is going to be a very short list because otherwise it's going to take up the entire interview, but you've trained to be samurai. You have tracked silverback gorillas in a hailstorm. You've stood face to face with hungry lions on safari. You've studied with monks. You've sped across glaciers on dog sleds. You've swum with sharks. And maybe just as or even more importantly that we're going to talk more about, you've helped over 50,000 people have the ability to hear. This, by the way, just the shortlist. Your work has been featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, I'm running out of breath. Dear Lord, this is one of the most challenging and exhausting intros I've ever done. How in the world have all of you accomplished all of these things? So excited to have you here today to talk about all of that and more. Bridget and Joe, it means the world to me that you decided to prioritize your time to share your story with me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. So here's where I actually want to start. We have two co-authors of a book talking about experiential billionaires. The irony is not lost on me that one of you was named to the Forbes and Inc. 30 under 30 lists. And while you were on that list, you were broke. And the other of you filed for bankruptcy at age 27. Help me reconcile these things. I'm going to start with you, Bridget. Uh, well, I think the the Forbes conversation is is part of a longer story, but uh, it was one of the funnier things that happened to us. And it was 
honestly the impetus of the whole um the name of the book and this is like a while ago this is like in 2015 when i was on that list but um at the time i mean we were running our company and we were having all of these amazing experiences around the world and people saw me on that list and i had all of these um you know old friends from high school or whatever reach out to me and say like oh can i borrow some money and i'm like we don't really have any money but uh <laughs> Sorry to tell you that, but um, so we started like this inside joke between me and Joe and we would say, we're not billionaires yet, but um, we're experiential billionaires. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that you clarify that because it's a much more interesting and engaging way to ask the question. Explain the title, because as soon as I saw the title at first, I was like, wait, experiential billionaires. I'm like, is this like a Richard Branson book or something? Because you just you make these assumptions about what it is. And as soon as I read the subtitle and started to dig in a little bit deeper, I'm like, oh, I get it. But I wanted to just kind of take what, whatever those mis, uh, misguided assumptions might be about who the authors are, or what you believe is truly important. The term billionaires has nothing to do with money or wealth, or at least how we traditionally define wealth. Um, so, Joe, same question to, to Bridget. Um, how do I reconcile this fact that you're going to teach me how to be an experiential billionaire, yet you've filed for bankruptcy? Like, what's, yeah. what's that all about? Yeah, you know, um, well, firstly, the bankruptcy story, uh, you know, it's funny, I guess that's part of the bigger um, underlying message that your wealth doesn't dictate how rich you are in life, right? So, and your wealth is one of those things that can change throughout, you know, time. It can be, you know, we can make money, lose money, things can happen, but our experiences, we don't lose, right? So the more that we're actually investing in experiences and you can invest in experiences regardless of whatever your financial situation is, if you're creative. Um, so for me, and, and first like the, the bankruptcy story, um, I like to joke about it because when I actually went bankrupt, um, I went to file for bankruptcy and they told me that it cost $2,500 to file for bankruptcy. And I, was, <laughs> I was devastated. I was like going to file for bankruptcy. And then I had to go around telling people I'd like to be bankrupt, but I just can't actually afford it. So I couldn't even afford to be bankrupt. Um, but the thing about that is, you know, since then, I've been able to become very wealthy in experiences. And actually, before then, I was doing a great job in, you know, investing in experiences. Um, and really this, you know, to really go to the answer of the real question, what the book title, what the message is, what the core of this all is, is that whatever you call it, whether you call it fulfillment, whether you call it happiness, whether you call it, you know, no regret or having content, you know, about what your life's about purpose, all of those things. Um, the reality is we have this like equation in our head where if we have enough money, we'll have that thing. We'll have that feeling that makes us feel like life is okay. And we just really strongly believe that that is wrong. You know, the thing that life that, you know, the measurement of life is our experience of life and the amount of experiences that we have during our life, right? So the bankruptcy, although that happened again, that was also quite a long time ago. Um, 
I've been able to since then have a really, really amazing life. And who knows, I could file bankruptcy again. People do, things happen, you never know. But the experiences that I have, I have forever. And those are the things that are gonna, I'm gonna take them to my grave, you know, to my dying day, I'll be able to look back and think, I sucked the marrow out of life. I actually got, I did the things I said I was gonna do. And some of them didn't work out, hence the bankruptcy. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you just... uh you got to roll with it, but that's, that's really yeah. the message. I love it. I'm, I'm glad you both shared that. Cause they just, I wanted to get it out of the way immediately. Like, okay, fine. A couple of wealthy entrepreneurs are going to tell me that I need to have more life experiences. Great. <laughs> like the last thing I need is Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos telling me the value of experiences. I don't have time for that. I've got kids. I've got a job. I can barely pay the bills. So I just, I wanted to get all those objections out of the way for people to understand that this is a completely different lens for us to look at our lives and how to measure our lives. And the, the idea that I've been sharing with people for years that is so in alignment in slightly different words to what you're talking about. And this is one of the speeches that I give, especially to my students that I, uh, I train students uh, to run Spartan races because um, I want them to use physical challenges to develop the, the mental and emotional resiliency for the shitstorm that is our lives, right? And I talk to them about how you we don't measure our lives so much in weeks and months or years, but I believe that in order to truly live a meaningful life, you should measure it in meaningful moments, mm -hmm. right? So my what I'm trying to do is collect as many moments and memories as possible. And the word that you're using experiences is pretty much the exact same idea. So as soon as I saw that, I'm like, yes, get them on the calendar. We must talk and break all this down. Um, so I just wanted to make it very clear for people not to be afraid of the word billionaire, because it means something yeah. very, very different in this equation. Very yeah. different. And I love what you're saying about collecting moments. Um, we think about that so much. And like, we like to think about this like fictional guy named Bob, and we think about Bob's funeral. And like, at the end of your life, like, at Bob's funeral, you're not going to say like, Oh, I loved Bob. Like he died with $10 million in the bank. Like you're going to talk about like, you know, how he took his kids to like national parks and how he watched the sunset with his wife every night and how like his coworkers loved, you know, volunteering with him at the animal shelter. Like all, all these people are going to talk about the moments that they had with him and the experiences that they had with this person. So I love like where you're going with that. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, it reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the book. Um, and I don't know if it was specific to Bob or not, but when you reach the end of your life, you're not going to say, can I hold my wallet just one more time? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that's such an eye opening moment and it's funny, but it's also like, oh man, that hits you. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's the way that we're trained and conditioned is that we're yeah. taught a very specific definition of what success means, what rich means, what wealth means. Um, so these are words that I want to help everybody redefine today that how you define the word rich or how you define the word wealthy is very individual. And oftentimes it's very, very different than what society wants you to believe it is. Um, and where I want to get started or to, to really start digging deeper into this, you mentioned this idea of the end of your life. This yeah. is a big catalyst for this entire book is this very specific Cornell study about how people see and view the end of their lives. So can you give people a little bit more context about how that was a really big inspiration for this entire movement in this book? 
Sure. Yeah, that that um, study revealed that 78% of people, like three out of four people, their number one regret toward the end of their life was the things they didn't do. It wasn't the things that they did. Um, and we actually ran a study ourselves of over 20,000 people. Um, and we reaffirmed that. And it wasn't even with people just at the end of their lives. It was with people really across all ages. Most people's regrets were the things that they hadn't been able to do or accomplish yet for whatever reason. Um and you know that that's a really eye-opening statistic, but it's still hard for people to like put that into their daily life and act upon it because it seems like people know this stuff. You know, they they think they do, they think they know it, but that's just not how we act. Um, for whatever reason, we still keep putting everything off until this fictional, you know, someday in the future when we're going to go and do those things that matter to us. And then we just never get around to it until it's too late. Hence, all those regrets. And that's really the subtitle of the book, you know, build the life rich in experience and die with no regrets. Because uh, I think that everybody, you know, when they really think about that, you know, if they get to that, that moment toward the end, and they see all of the missed opportunities, it's really easy to picture that and picture how that's going to feel, you know, you're going to know, like, I actually didn't try or I didn't, you know, make that a priority. Um, so that's a big part of it. And that we actually have a real personal story. I think this can, you know, uh, illustrate a little bit too more about like the, the money part, because really, you know, you, you nailed it, by the way, um, with your comment about the excuses or the, the reasons people will dismiss this right away. And it's basically great, you know, these people are rich, or, you know, they've obviously got more resources. Um, and the number one excuse people have is they don't have enough time, and they don't have enough money. And that's why they don't do things. You know, we didn't start anywhere near that. You know, I grew up, my parents met on an assembly line making brake pads in the Midwest. So the closest uh, experience I had to a trust fund was trusting they would fund a trip to the ice cream truck occasionally. <laughs> and yeah, and I didn't go to college. Uh, unfortunately, I, I barely graduated high school. And I started my life off with this um, moment, though, where right when I turned 18, I just managed to graduate high school. And uh, I came downstairs and I found my dad slumped over at the kitchen table. And he was white as a sheet and just completely drenched in sweat. And, you know, we we called the ambulance and sent to the hospital where we assumed he had a heart attack and which was scary enough. Um, but that actually started off a crazy two month uh, nightmare for our family where he didn't just have a heart attack, he had heart failure. And that moment was the beginning, like where, you know, he basically went right on to life support. Um, he, they bumped into the top of the heart transplant list. They told us he has very low odds of survival. He wound up needing uh, the defibrillator paddles right away. That hurt so much. He decided he didn't want that to happen again. So we were, we were sat there just like waiting for, you know, this terrible outcome. And my dad was really young. He was 48 years old. And uh, I just remember thinking this is all wrong. You know, thinking about all the things my dad had never done that he wanted to do. He was that person in that statistic in that Cornell study, you know, like he was literally going to be that person that put everything off for this future that just doesn't exist. And so many people, I think we just think we have more time. Um, so for me, that moment, though, just gave me this great gift of urgency to start doing things. And I still, and this ties back to that money and time thing, I didn't have any resources, but I suddenly had urgency. And then that got me going. That got me like, okay, what can I do? What, what can I do with my time and the money, the little bit of money and time that I have? And I made lists and I did all these really fun things. Like I went like, 
free diving and I went, you know, I did like crazy hikes around my area and I went and learned how to cliff dive and I went skydiving. I saved up for a couple months, but I did it. I put it on the calendar and did it. And, uh, you know, that, that got some momentum going and that led me all the way through my, my life journey of like being able to eventually bootstrap a small business that turned into a larger business. And that, got me to the point where I met Bridget and I, you know, started this whole other journey. But, you know, I guess the point really there is that we all have the same, you know, constraints, however we want to look at it. Um, but it's about making, you know, steps forward to like start having those experiences. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I want to tap into a little bit later in this conversation, I'll put a pin in it for now. Um, but if I were to the the problem that I have with this interview is there's an embarrassment of riches and I could probably do a 90 minute interview on every chapter. We're not going to do that because I want to be respectful of your time. But what I want to get into a little bit later, the one that I really resonated with more than anything was how to turn negatives into positives. So I definitely want to go there in a little bit. But what I want to do is unpack some of the core ingredients that I think you're talking about, which are that number one, there is urgency. And I know that one of the main purposes of your book is how do we help people have that urgency without a near death experience, right? Without a gun to your head or defibrillators, or you've lost everything and you're homeless. Like ideally we can create urgency without that. I want to talk more about that, exactly. but I feel like the, the ingredients that are necessary are there's urgency and it's not, it's not like you eliminated your fears. I just think you found a way to manage the fear where the fear of the unknown or the fear of cliff diving or the fear of, you know, chasing silverback gorillas in a hailstorm is less than the fear of regret. And that's the fear that I often have to yeah. tap into. And if the third thing you add is intention and purpose, when you've got urgency, you can manage the fear and you've got purpose, like you're unstoppable and you don't need any money to be able to move forwards. Yeah. Just so um, it's clear. My dad actually was, was very lucky. We were lucky. My dad got the heart transplant and he had this second round of life that was, you know, obviously very, um, very important for all of us to witness. But what sunk in to your point was that the health situation with my dad wasn't avoidable, but the regret was. So that's what drove that intentionality, that urgency, that, you know, forward moment that makes you kind of unstoppable all of a sudden because now all of a sudden you can see this is the real fear is this regret not the fear mm -hmm. of like you know trying some new thing and whatever that thing might be it's the regret fear sorry Bridget you can jump in there oh no no worries uh, I was just going to talk about time constraints and urgency and how you know we call it someday syndrome because it's all of these people will say you know someday i want to do this but i'm going to wait until you know i graduate college i'm going to wait until i you know get married or have kids or until the kids are older until i you know retire you know insert excuse here and then it just like comes into this like abyss of this fictional day of someday and that's why people regret things. And that's why we really try to drive home the urgency message because this isn't like, you know, this is like your life and it's, it's, you need to like put a time constraint around it because nobody has like deadlines in their personal life. And like, that's what we're really driving home is that like, it's happening right now. You have to like do the things you want to do now because you tomorrow is not promised. And we don't know how long we're going to have. Yeah the value. Yeah. Given that you're talking to an audience of largely creative people, I can guarantee almost all of them are saying, yes, I will definitely get to this later. I'm going to procrastinate later. I'm going to get to this later. I've got other things to do now. Um, and you've got a couple of very practical steps to help introduce this urgency. Because like you said, and I want to emphasize this, 
near-death experiences should not be the only thing that lend urgency to the value of your life. I've never had one of those near-death experiences, but for me, the urgency came from having kids and being a dad and realizing, and I know that Bridget, you also worked in the entertainment industry on the music side in LA for years, it will completely consume you. There yep. are zero boundaries. They will take everything from you that they possibly can until they find somebody else that's willing to pay the passion tax all over again, right? And it was when I realized when I had kids that I really had to either make a choice or I had to find a way to blend both of them together with boundaries. That was when my urgency came along. And now I constantly feel the sense of urgency thinking, oh my God, like my son, he's gonna be out of the house in five years. He's been in our house, for, like how is it that he's almost 14 years old? That's an urgency that changes. Well, do I want to help him with his homework or do I want to do this thing when I've got this other work project? No, that urgency is there. So talk to me about other strategies that you share. There's a couple of really good ones in the book about how anybody can introduce urgency and stop procrastinating and putting this into the magical, mysterious land of someday. So I'll do the first very short exercise we have in the book is uh, a memento mori chart, which is uh, basically 76 uh, blocks that you fill in how many years that you've lived so far. So for me, uh, it's an inter interesting exercise in year because I'm 38 and I'm exactly halfway through the average American lifespan. So I have this card that I see every single day. I have it on my bookshelf. And it reminds me that I'm exactly halfway through the average lifespan. So if I want to do something, I better like start, you know, planning it right now. Right. And a lot of people really resonate with this exercise because they never thought of it that way. Because I think in our heads, the average is like, oh, I'm going to die when I'm in my, like when I'm a hundred years old in my sleep and like, it's going to be all good. <laughs> like a lot of people really feel that way, but the reality is unfortunately not that. Um, so when we have people do this exercise, they can kind of see how many boxes they have left. And then it also makes them think of the different generations in their life, right? Like you were saying, like with your kid, you have five years left. So you're like, okay, look at this chart. I have five years left where he's going to be at home. So what do I want to do in those five years? Do I want to take him on this road trip with just you and him? Do you want to like, you know, teach him how to whatever skill that you want to teach him, like you've got literally five years until he's out of the house. And this exercise makes you think of like those little things that you want to do in the constrained time. So I just, I love that exercise. Yeah. It's, it's the math. The math continues too, right? So it's like, yeah, there's five years. Then you break it down into, okay, you know, say your parents are already in their seventies. Like my mom is actually 82. And so she's already gone beyond in the bonus round past the average. Right. But if you're somebody's like 70 years old and the average is 76, and you see that person once a year, and then you can do the math and go, wait, I'm only going to see them maybe six more times. That's not enough, you know? Um, and if with your kids, you take a vacation once a year and there's only five more years while they're in the house. Okay. That's five more trips. Is that enough? And if it's not, you, once you put that kind of, you know, clarity into that problem, it's, it's a little uh, easier to make changes, I think, because then you can see, I, I have to do this now. Yeah, it lights a fire on you. I mean, like for me, like when we were writing this book and we put that exercise in the book, it like instantly made me book a trip. So I'm from Michigan and um, my dad like loves hunting. Go blue. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> 
he, um, like his life revolves around like hunting and always has, and I've always been like, someday I'll go hunting with you. Right. And I kind of always pushed it off until like, you know, whenever. And then when we did this exercise, I was like, Oh, like, damn, like I need to like book this trip immediately because I don't know how many years that there's going to be left where he's actually out in the wilderness and like hunting animals. Right. Like, so, so I booked it immediately and I went and I was like, I'm so thankful that I did that because like, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, I can very much speak to how well this exercise works. And this will talk a little bit more about the difference between the logical brain and the emotional brain. Going through this uh, this book, obviously, I go through lots of different books, talk to lots of different experts. I can't do every single exercise and end of the chapter activity and all like you. You guys have so many bonus resources, such an embarrassment of riches. So my first reaction was as I was reading that um, that chapter and I'm going through and I see that exercise, I see the chart with the 76 boxes. My logical brain said, yeah, yeah, I get it. But then I'm like, you know what? Just do it. So I literally spent 30 seconds and I just crossed off the boxes and I looked at it and I was like, oh shit, I get it now. Like I felt it. There's a difference between I get it and I feel it. And just the 30 seconds of doing what I already know the outcome was going to be, seeing less empty boxes than filled ones, I felt something. And the impetus for that, that this none of this is just to, to fill the podcast. This is actually the thought process is I thought one of my challenges right now is that my kids have surpassed the time where Friday and Saturday nights were movie nights. And one of the concepts that you talked about in the book is it's the last time for something, but you don't know what's the last time, whether it's the last time you put your kids to bed or whatever it is. And I thought I'm, I'm trying to find something I can do with Friday and Saturday nights because my kids are too old and too cool for movie nights. And I thought, well, what about like, you know, not an adult version because they're only um, 11 and 13, but like a funner version of a game night that's more sophisticated than like Monopoly, right? I wouldn't have thought of that. And I wouldn't already be putting ideas and research on my calendar if I hadn't physically crossed out those boxes because I felt the urgency. So it worked even on me. And I'm immune to this stuff because I talk about it all day long. Like, ah, they got me. So I'm already trying to figure out how do I turn Saturday nights into game night? Because I got five years left. That scares the shit out of me. A little like Shark Tank with them. Like they can oh, yeah. their own business. That would be so fun. Well, my son has already started a business. It's funny enough you bring that up because our extra, the, the activity we have right now is that he's turned the carport in our house into a haunted house. Uh-huh. And That's he great. thought it was just going to be, I was like, yeah, just put up a few skeletons and cobwebs. That's fine. Um, he actually got uh, KTLA and ABC7 over here to do a featured <laughs> news story. And we had like 500 people at our house last Halloween. And now he's like running Google ads and he's like, I want to double the amount of people. I'm like, oh shit, what have I gotten myself into? But <laughs> yeah, that to I me- I want you to know that I am actually a professional haunted house um, employee. Uh, that was one of my first jobs ah. was to work at a haunted house. I don't ever talk about this, but if you need someone, just let me know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think you and I are going to have to meet in person and we're going to have to get your professional opinion. Maybe we even need <laughs> an, an extra scare actor. But yeah, the reason I bring all the- yeah. Yeah. I'm in Woodland Hills. So I'm not that far. Oh, I'm like um, 10 minutes away. So. Oh, great. So then you're definitely going to have to come. And by the way, you'll probably see a Google ad for my son's haunted house because he's <laughs> running Google ads as we speak. The point of all this is that there, there are very few memories that I'm going to remember more than this. Right. Oh, yeah. 
And it's a giant pain in the ass. I mean, the amount of time and effort and running to hardware stores and like all the things that he's doing, like logistically, he and I sat down and had multiple like production meetings, all of which he scheduled. Like, let's figure out what weekends you can help me with this. And here's our calendar. And I looked at him like, this is a lot and it's overwhelming and the timing of it with my own business and with the strikes going on, like this, the timing couldn't be worse. There's no way in hell I'm not going to do this because it's collecting moments and memories, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most things that are worth it, are they're not easy, right? They don't have to be super difficult, but it takes effort. You know, that's why we always use like cooking and things like that as an example. Like, What's your kid going to remember the night that you made a pizza from scratch or homemade pasta or when you ordered in again? You know, like it's nice to sure it's great to share a meal when you order in with your kids and your family, but making a meal is an experience, right? Having, you know, Halloween walking through the neighborhood's cool creating your own Halloween like scare fest in your carport. That's really cool. You know, that's something that you'll talk about 20 years later, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that's really, really cool. And you're, you're right on, you know, you're spot on with it. Yeah. And I think that uh, something else that factors into some of the things you talk about in your book is how this can kind of snowball. So if mm-hmm. I were to re- reverse engineer from the time he was two or three years old, three, four, five, six, seven, he always got really excited about just doing a few decorations on the outside of the house. I've never been a Halloween person. Hopefully he doesn't hear this. I've never been interested in Halloween. It's never been my thing. Like I did a couple of trick or treats growing up, but it was, just, I was never interested in it. So it was like begrudgingly like, all right, sure, we'll go pick up the new hanging skeleton or whatever, or fog machine. And every year it was, let's buy a new thing for him. It was like, I'll, I'll buy one new nice animatronic or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, like I said, it converted from, well, we're just going to have this one afternoon where we're going to put up the cobwebs. And because it became a habit and a ritual, now all of a sudden it's become this thing where I'm pretty confident by next year, he's going to ask all of us to move out and he's going <laughs> to turn us our entire house into this like Universal Studios Horror Nights experience. But it started with the equivalent of just going to make one pizza one night together and it just snowballed into something else. So talk to me a little bit more about this idea of how you can get a much larger return on investment on these experiences and start small rather than I got to, I got to make $50,000 so I can take my family on a Europe trip for a month. Yeah, that's a big, a big thing, a big deterrent surprisingly is the same thing that actually gets people motivated in the first place. And that's like bucket lists, right? People look at big ticket bucket list things and they, they dream about it and they fantasize about it. And that gets them, you know, like this dreamy kind of, you know, yeah, I really want to do that thing. But then it becomes a deterrent because then the realistic side of them is like, well, I can't do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. It's going to, I don't know how to plan it. It's a, it's a heavy lift. So the way to like really satisfy both those things um, is whatever you're doing, you have to build in the smaller steps. Um, and that way you're having these valuable experiences the entire way along the road. So, you know, we like to use travel because travel seems to always be really high on people's lists. Um, but for instance, say you wanted to go to Italy, you know, do a vacation there. Maybe it's going to take you six months. Maybe it's going to take you three years to plan it. It just depends. Obviously, different people and different resources. But along the way, you can do all kinds of fun things that involve that that same end goal that are going to be enriching and rewarding, like learning how to make Italian food at home from scratch or like learning how to speak Italian with a 
free app on your phone and going to Italian restaurants and learning about where all the different, you know, foods are from and different, you know, uh, wines, watching Italian movies that are like classics or movies that take place in Italy, et cetera. Um, so there's all these things you can do that create these memories that have value that are building towards something bigger. But then if the bigger thing actually never happens, you didn't just put it off indefinitely. You weren't just like, well, I'm just going to wait until I can do this big thing to do anything. And that's the big mistake everybody seems to want to make, you know? And, and again, like, I think one of the things that our, our study showed really clearly was that um, people do know this stuff. When you ask them what the most important thing is, the most valuable thing in their lives, everybody talked about experiences. Nobody said my car, nobody said my watch or my diamond grill or whatever. You know, people all said something uh, that was a personal experience of some kind. Yet, the amount of those things that were doable things, you know, they weren't all bucket list things that they asked, that they said, they didn't list like go to Italy or, you know, do some big trip. It was something small, something attainable. I regret not keeping in touch with old friends. I regret not going back to the state I grew up in or, or learning the, you know, a little bit more of the language that my parents spoke so I could get more of our history, et cetera, et cetera. That was the kind of stuff we heard um, over and over. So the smaller things are really the meat and potatoes. And this is, this goes back to, to, um, this goes back to, to what you said about the wealth thing. And I think that the reason the wealth metaphor, you know, works is we really believe everyone can become experientially rich. But not everybody's going to be rich. Not everybody's going to be financially rich. Just sorry to break it to everybody. That's that, you know, and a lot of people might, you know, a lot of people can work really hard and have a great life, but not everyone's going to be Bill Gates or Bezos or whoever. But you can fill your life with really meaningful things. And we all see this. We all know people that have a ton of money that are miserable. And we all know people that don't have much money at all and are super happy. It's because some people figure out life. They figure out how to invest in the moments and the people and the relationships and the things that make it worthwhile. And it just takes that effort, just like your your Halloween uh, haunted house. It takes a little bit of effort to find those moments. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, 
it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Well, I know that you also have an exercise that goes a little bit deeper. uh, And Bridget, if you want to talk a little bit more about this idea of a treasure map, because to me, this is not it's not the antithesis, but it's the alternative to the bucket list, which helps you avoid some of those traps of this would be amazing. But most everything on a bucket list does end up on your someday list because it's so overwhelming to think, what do I do at 2 p.m. tomorrow to make this happen? So tell me a little bit more about this treasure map exercise, because I really I found this really interesting, this approach to goal setting. Yeah, this is my favorite exercise in the book for sure. And it's um, it's in the very beginning of the book and it kind of takes you through the path of how to like complete your treasure map. So what it is, is um, if you can imagine your doctor just called and um, he has some really bad news, you only have one year left to live. And so what you what we're asking people to do is write out numbers one through 10 and um, just take some time and think about what you would do in that one year. Like now that you have like a finite amount of time, like, like you said, it's probably not going to be quote, travel the world. It's probably going to be very specific. Like I want to go to, I want to go on a safari or I want to go like, you know, move to nature or I want to teach my kid how to, you know, ride a bike and how to read and like these things that are like very essential to them. Like, it's not going to be like very, um, unrealistic, (laughs) unrealistic goals. Yes. (laughs) Um, so once you write down those 10 things, um, and again, it doesn't have to be about like climbing Mount Everest or whatever. It can be like, you know, I want to take a video and give it to my kids and teach them all the things that I've learned. So take a look at that list that you wrote down and ask yourself, how many of those things are you actively working towards right now? Um, and what we found in our, in our keynotes and our conferences that we've done and whatnot is the answer is none. Um, none of those top 10 things that you want to do before you're dying in one year, are you actually working on right now? And so that's a really scary thing to do. And it gives people the urgency to do those things. And then we continue the exercise and we go, okay, your doctor just called again. Now you have 30 days. What would you do in those 30 days? I fire my doctor, dear Lord. <laughs> yeah, terrible yeah. doctor. Right, continue. This is actually Jeez. the worst doctor of all. <laughs> yeah, the worst terrible. doctor ever, but continue. Because he actually calls you one more time and he says, yeah, right. really bad news. <laughs> you only have one day left to live. And of course, those things that you're going to do in that one day are never like, I'm going to travel the world. It's always like, I'm going to call X person and tell them that I love them. I'm going to forgive this person. I'm going to spend time with my family or my friends or do like the one thing that I really want to do on the one day. And that's a really um, eye-opening exercise because 
it's like, why aren't you doing those things today? If they're so important to you, it's the number one thing that you would do in the one day that you have left to live. Why aren't you doing those things today? Yeah. And a key part of the exercise is they have to be things you can actually do, right? So at the end of the exercise, you have to actually say, you know, we tell people like, do those things now. This is something that you know is going to cause you immense regret, like deep, deep, deep regret. Do it now. And then you've got that off that list that's gone. Now, now you actually can move forward knowing that, you know, you've taken that regret away from your future. And again, that's a really powerful, powerful tool, very powerful step um, for somebody to take. Yeah, it's kind of like the anti like hustle busy culture, because that excuse doesn't really make sense in this, you know, it's like, we can't be too busy maintaining our lives to like stop and do the things that matter most to you. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm doing right now is I'm amassing all of the wealth and all the time so that I can do it when I retire someday, because that's what I've been taught. That's how the system works. Right. I learn to do one specific thing and I get very specialized in that craft. Then I'm a widget in a machine. I do that for 30 or 40 years that's then when I get to start living my life. That's what I've been told. That's how life works. Yeah, kids kids get it. You know, kids don't do that. Kids want to do everything they want to do right now all the time. And you know, there's a lot to learn from kids because they haven't been beaten down by a system. And, you know, even though people don't act accordingly, you know, they, even though we know our experiences are the most important things, people don't act like that. It's not our fault. It's not anyone's fault because we're taught that we're literally taught Mm -hmm. to put things off and that everything will fall into place if we just focus and, you know, creatives, especially by the way, um, I feel like people that are in an industry that whatever industry people are in, the more creative I feel surprisingly is when people are more dedicated to that art or that craft or that thing to the point where they, they literally sacrifice everything else. You know, I know a lot of people in the industry living here in LA that work just incessantly. Um, and they get a lot of really cool experiences along with the job. And I think a lot of people use that as an excuse, perhaps. And this is the same with musicians and everybody that's touring the world and doing all these things. But there's definitely an imbalance point where people are only working and then they're not actually stopping to figure out what those things on their treasure map are. Because mm-hmm. even if you're delivering something of value to other people and you're doing a bunch of other really cool things, you've got stuff that you're going to regret inside you that you need to figure out what those things are. You need to get that treasure map going. And you know, and the treasure map, by the way, evolves because obviously as you check things off and as you grow, things change. But getting that compass you know, going so you're you're headed in the right direction is really, really helpful. Helpful, I think, for people to have that sanity. Yeah, and the the irony of it all, and this is just a, a soapbox that I will literally die on, and I talk about this on just about every podcast, and it's the reason why this is the perfect fit for the narrative that I'm talking about. The irony of it is that in order for you to be truly great at what you do as a creative, it doesn't matter what the craft is, acting, writing, directing, editing, composing, it's your diverse array of life experiences that make you a better artist. And you're losing all of those life experiences because you're focused just on the craft. And yes, there's a certain period of time. You just learn the hard skills. You learn the software. You learn the notes, whatever it is, right? But then after a certain point, what differentiates you and provides true value as a creative are the life experiences outside of your job, which you're waiting to do someday because you're too damn busy working. (laughs) Yeah. 
Exactly. It's getting that perspective, definitely. And we've had some really fun conversations with folks already um, that have already dug into the book. A friend of ours that's in the industry told us just the other day that their agent, they they got an offer to go with some family gorilla trekking, um, just like we had done. And uh, it's in the book, as you know, in the, in the beginning, um, our story about that. And uh, their agent, they asked their agent, you know, if they were going to go, they told them the agent said, you really shouldn't go. There's a lot going on right now. It's not a good time, blah, blah, blah. And they said they read the 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 first part of the book and were like, screw this. And they booked the trip and went and they literally sent us a message and said, I just want you to know that your book changed my life already in the first few pages. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so uh, there's a couple of nuanced things that I want to get into then bigger picture. Um, they might seem like tangents, but they're actually going to be leading somewhere. The first of which is why a year and a month and a day? Why not a five-year plan or a 10-year plan? Or you've got like, why, where did these specific numbers come from? Were they intuition? Were they research? Where, where did these come from that you were so specific with your treasure map? Yeah. I think like the the first part is like the very short, but then in chapter two, we do go into like, well, you can't do everything you want to do in one year, right? But the the treasure map with the one year, one month, one day is is just to install your urgency in like what you want. And like, those are really, really important things. If you only had like this very short amount of time, what would you do? But we do go into like making bigger goals around like a five or 10 year plan, like, like a career, for an example. You can't build a, a dream career that you want in a year. Like that's just not going to happen. Or a so, family. Yeah, or family, right? Like, uh, yeah, I want a family, but is that going to happen in the year? No. <laughs> like, let's be realistic. So there's things that we go into a little bit later in the book that are those five and 10 year plants. But I think it's really important just to get that urgency in the treasure map. Yeah. And also, I, I, well, I was just going to add in, you know, th- that's that's one of the things that happens is when people find out from a near-death death illness type of scenario, it is a short time usually. People usually don't get told, you know, you've got 10 years to live. People that have something suddenly happen, it's usually something sudden. That's the whole nature of it. And that's when clarity comes into play. It, it takes that to get clarity. Yeah, getting a near-death experience without actually having it, hopefully. Mm-hmm. The other reason that I bring it up too is that um, maybe we're just reading the same things and it's the, you know, collective conscious. Um, But I've always been annoyed when people use the example of what would you do if you have one day to live? I'm like, that's not helpful to me. Everybody would do the same thing. You'd call the most important people. You'd want to be with your family. Like you're going to get the same boring generic answer. You give somebody a year, ooh, that gets complicated because now you got time, but you don't have too much time. So I've I've had a very similar exercise that I've used, and I don't know where I got the one year from other than intuition, which is why I was curious how you came to the exact same conclusion that I did. Yeah, so. I think that one year also is interesting because if you truly only had one year left to live, a year is still enough time to do some remarkable things, and you would find a way. If it was literally your last year, you would find a way you would, I don't care if it's run a marathon or hike a mountain or, you know, do something really, you know, a big bucket list thing. If it was possible to do within a year, you would most likely find a way because that's your only chance, right? So I think that that's powerful to show people how to do some of those more difficult things too. Yeah. The So the other procedural question that I just, I got to be honest, both I and my producer are racking our brains. And it's, again, it's not a total tangent. It'll seem like it, but there's a reason I'm asking. 
how the hell did you survey 20,000 people? That is not easy. How did you actually do that? And the reason that I'm asking is because I want to better understand who the actual people were that were surveyed. But just how did you take it upon yourselves to survey 20,000 people? So the first step was that we started asking people that we knew, of course, like, and that's mm-hmm. what really like made it more interesting is like, I would, like, I asked like my grandpa, for example, and then I asked, um, you know, my friends and like other people like of all ages, like, what are your biggest regrets right now? What would you want to do in the future? You know, what's keeping you from your dreams and your goals? And it was just so interesting. And so we kind of got a little bit deeper on that. And we started going to like retirement homes and talking to a lot of elderly people because, you know, who better to like spread their wisdom than people that have kind of seen and done it all. And that led us to surveying way more people online. So we have a part on our website that you can go to um, and you can take the survey yourself and like be, you know, added to that 20,000 plus list. So a lot of it was done online, actually. Yeah. And really, this all was born as we, you know, we basically came to this point of like where we we feel like the most important thing we can do now is help other people find a way to live experientially rich lives. And that's when we really started investing a lot more time and money into creating, you know, these tools um, with the book and the card deck and some of the other stuff we did. So part of that was like, we need to know, you know, where some of this other research that we're reading and seeing stands, you know, in, you know, on its, if it stands on its own outside of, you know, some of these places we've read it. So, so we used, you know, uh, uh, companies to do online uh, surveying that, you know, we can choose the demographics and figure out, you know, basically what makes sense or what's true and false and whatever. And that's why it was really interesting um, to hear again, some of the, uh, the stats that we found that were people that were um, toward the end of their life, actually the same kind of regrets were happening with people that were, you know, in their twenties, but we wouldn't have even guessed that until we actually did the survey and saw 20,000 plus results come in. Yeah. And that's one of the things about this that was so intriguing to me is that most of the kind of end of life surveys or books or anecdotes, it's always somebody at the very end of their life. And yours to me was very interesting because like you said, it is people in their twenties or thirties that have very, very similar regrets. And you're like, but you've got all this time, but they still feel that same regret. Uh, The other thing I'm curious about, and I think I already know the answer. um, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a statistician, but I dabble. I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm obsessed with human psychology is one of your survey questions to clarify the level of income that somebody is to get a sense that across all incomes, whether somebody made 50,000 a year or 50 million, that it just, that was largely irrelevant. Did you qualify for income and wealth? We did. We, um, we have a whole range of incomes from people making not that much to people making millions of dollars a year. And it's honestly, it's very similar on all of the regrets. Yeah. And a lot of, there's been a lot of um, peer reviewed studies on that topic and, you know, about, you know, what the, they they vary, I would say, but um, about where the break point is from, if you make more money than X, it's not, you're not significantly happier or measurably happier, et cetera. And, you know, again, I, I, I definitely want to, I think this is a great time to, to talk about or qualify that it's not about, 
making money versus making, you know, having experiences because they're not like, like to your point, they're, they're connected. They're not, you know, separate things. The more experiences you have, the more value you create for others, the more permission you give to other people to live and experience their goals, the more interesting, um, a perspective you have to bring to your job and your career and and you know people generally i think have a, a much higher um trajectory that are more well-rounded and have more perspectives um so I, it's not that they're separated um so so you can still make money and have experiences and of course we'd be you know everyone would shut this podcast off and never ever listen to us again if we said you know you can't have more experiences if you have more money sure it'd be nice if we were all rich and could do whatever we want the point is you don't have to be definitely <laughs> yeah uh, and the, the the equation that really changed everything for me and i'll make sure we link to this in the show notes uh but i did a conversation with dr tal ben shahar who's one of the you know, world leading academics on understanding the psychology and the science of happiness. And the equation that we're all taught is that success plus money equals happiness. And you have to learn how to flip those around. If you can find happiness and contentment with what you have and where you are now, then the success and the money come. But it's really hard to wrap our heads around that. And I think one of the key ingredients as we're talking about here to have the happiness now is I can develop all these different life experiences and habits that create these moments, not independent of, or it's going to stop me from becoming successful or wealthy. It actually leads you closer to it, but it's counterintuitive. Exactly. Well, we actually have equations in the beginning of our book. Uh, I know that's why I brought it up. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, yeah. they're equation-minded personal development writers, just like me. Yeah. So I, I resonated with a lot of that. Yeah. And the ones in our book, if you remember, it was uh, you know, money times a lot equals wealth. And we mm -hmm. think it should be experiences times a lot equals wealth because that's yeah. really when people feel rich in life. Exactly. So I want to uh, now I want to come back to the pin that I put into our earlier conversation to better understand how we can turn negatives into positives. I do a lot of mentoring with people in all stages of their careers, all the way from people that are just about ready for retirement, making major career transitions or people just coming in to any industry and talk to people about internships and everybody's got their own stories and experiences. But forever in a day, as it will be known going forwards, Bridget, you have the best I'm a 19-year-old intern story ever in the history of humankind. So let's start our conversation about turning negatives into positives by sharing your story of being a 19-year-old intern. Oh, wow. I, I honestly haven't really talked about this on any podcast or anywhere. So this is kind of funny that you brought it up. <laughs> I guess I'll start like right before this story. So I grew up in Flint, Michigan. Um, and my entire existence when I was a kid was obsessed with music. My whole life revolved around music. Like every single little thing that I did was like, I'm going to be in the music industry someday. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about school. I don't care about literally anything. So I started my quote unquote career in the music industry um, by doing all of these jobs that like nobody else wanted to do, like cleaning up trash at music venues and getting coffee for people at radio stations and like passing out like, you know, thousands and thousands of flyers outside of venues when it was like zero degrees outside and like selling, you know, band t-shirts out of vans all over Michigan and Ohio and Kentucky and, and all over the Midwest. 
And um, eventually, like I took all of these like little steps that were just so like, you know, not fun, quote unquote. But um, all of those steps led me to getting an internship at Universal Music Group, which used to have an office in Detroit. Um, No longer, but uh, (laughs) that's how the music industry is. But um, so I finally like got this dream, you know, internship when I was 19. And then eventually, and I was literally living in my car and like with like 13 other couches around like the Metro Detroit area, like just bouncing around people's apartments because I didn't have any money. Like I was making zero, literally zero dollars. So it was a struggle. But eventually I got uh, the coveted job of the mailroom clerk when I was 19. And it was literally the best day of my life. Like I can still remember exactly like how I found out and how I felt. And I was just like, you know, I'm never going to struggle again or whatever, (laughs) which as you know, is like total BS, but that's how I felt at the time. Um, So less than two weeks after I you know, started this mailroom job. It was like before I even got my first paycheck, which by the way, was like, I was making $20,000 a year. So I wasn't, uh, wasn't really rolling in the dough, but, um, I was driving to work and it was like on a Tuesday morning. And that's when like all the sound scan reports came out for the new releases for albums. Um, and so the company always had like a Tuesday morning meeting at like nine in the morning. So I'm like, driving in it's like 8 55 I like pull up right to where um like where the parking lot is and then I hear like the a siren like behind me and I was getting pulled yeah <laughs> like the sound that nobody wants to hear especially if you're broke you really don't want to hear that and I knew that like the taps on my car were expired and that you know I so I had previously gotten some ticket that I didn't pay And of course, because I like basically was homeless and I didn't have anywhere for them to send me the ticket. Um, And and they pulled me over because my tabs were expired. And then they found out that my license was expired because I didn't pay this ticket and um, basically got like handcuffed and thrown into a cop car right in front of where everyone was having this meeting on Tuesday morning. Um, so I was like the brand new employee, like they took a huge chance on me because I was like so young. And <laughs> and so everybody at the office watched me get thrown into this cop car and taken to jail on a Tuesday morning. So <laughs> eventually, you know, we're back in jail. I'm like sitting there all day, all night. I have no money, no intention to like, I have no idea like how I'm going to like pay to get out of jail. And they also like took my car, obviously. So no idea how I'm going to do that. So I used like my one call from jail to call my boss. And <laughs> like, you know, it starts with like the pre-recorded clip of like, this is a call from the Detroit jail. <laughs> <laughs> Left a message and told him basically that I wouldn't be coming in. And that the only way I could get out is if they like took money out of like my upcoming paycheck to pay for my bail. <laughs> so. It was this whole thing. And long story short, like I ended up staying there overnight and it was just this horrible experience of like, I finally like reached my goal. Like my biggest goal in life was to be in the music industry. And I'd like screwed it all up by like, you know, making this mistake and not paying a ticket. And, um, 
you know what what happened is I thought that my life was over and like it's a funny story now but it was not funny then and I really thought that you know everything would go up in flames um but what happened is like everyone just kind of made fun of me and like I was this kid that like they saw go to jail and like it didn't really like affect my career or my life at all after that, like other than, you know, constantly having to like make payments on like getting my car out of the the lot and whatnot. But um, it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened in the music industry, thankfully. So now that I'm you know older, it's like, okay, it's funny to me, like it was to them. Yeah, I've heard worse stories of things that have happened in the music industry. So yes, yeah. it, it could have been worse. Um, but you definitely win the internet for today as far as brand new 19-year-old interns getting their first breakout job. And literally, not you think the story is going to be at a high note when you get arrested in front of the board meeting and everybody sees you. But no, no. Oh, no, you had to add a bonus, which is that my boss is going to bail me out. Yeah. Um, so anybody yeah. that's thinking, oh, well, let me tell you this crazy internship story, I'll say, just just listen to this one. Let me send you a link to this and you tell me how crazy you think your story is. Yeah, um, I like so, to say now that I'm the boss, you know, like Joe and I have a couple different companies now and and I promise to bail out any like future employees just so I can like pay it forward in the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now in and of itself, very entertaining story. But for the sake of conversation, there's a lot more that goes with it. You had said that, well, there were never really any effects that came from it. But I would argue that there were probably a lot of positive effects that have come from having that negative experience. And you talk a lot in this chapter about turning negatives into positives. And there's one very specific concept that I have loved for years that you brought up specifically and I zoomed right in. And I know I'm probably going to say it wrong, but it's this Japanese philosophy of, is it Kintsugai? Yeah. Am I saying that? wrong right honestly you could be saying it right i don't really know but uh i want to dig into this a little bit further um and it's really a, a very visual and practical version of understanding how to reframe negative experiences and take something positive out of them so can you explain this a little bit further and why this is something you featured in the book Sure. So first of all, I think one of the most interesting things about our survey of 20,000 people is we asked what was the most valuable experience of your life? And a third of the people said a negative experience. And when I did the survey myself, I actually was one of those people. So I went through this crazy year in 2020 um, where I got separated and then I had to move and then my new place got broken into several times. And then our company listen was um, at a very, in a very bad spot where we had to lay off our employees. And like, there was all these things that were happening that were super, super negative. And at the time I became super depressed and um, it was by far the worst part of my life. And in my entire life, this was like the worst year. But what I think now, you know, in twenty, the end of 2023, is that that was actually the most valuable part of my life. And um, the Kintsugi stuff is, is basically, say you have um, like a teacup and there's a crack in it. Um, what they do in Japan, they, they fill it with gold. And so it's even more beautiful than it was previously. And it's really like the cracks that give us like the character and like give us the the depth and like the beauty in our lives is like going through these negative experiences. And that's really what I um, experienced in my own life is that I took this really, really horrible year and turned it into, you know, what's now experiential billionaire. I mean, Joe and I started writing the book um, right after this happened. So 
And he has some examples of that as well um, that we've gone through in the last couple of years. But um, but a negative experience can really like turn everything into something that's beautiful. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So, Joe, I'm, I'm assuming you have a, a couple of uh, golden cracks in your teacup of life, I would presume. <laughs> My teacup looks mostly golden. <laughs> it's a golden cup with some some little porcelain marks in it here and there um, at this point. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's the typical, you know, the hero's journey story, right? You know, you, you have to take the everyday, the normal person that, you know, goes through some trial by fire, some some really difficult situation. And whether willingly or unwillingly, you know, somehow makes it through, somehow survives and gets to the other side, but they're not the same person, right? They become something greater than they were. They come out a better version of themselves. And this is really, to me, like, this is the, the real essence of, you know, of taking you know basically getting the most out of life like really 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 taking those negative things and turning them into some kind of fuel and positive you know outcome and if you can you know get good at doing that and realizing you're going to get through it you're going to get to the other side and you're going to be better and stronger because of it it's just a super powerful um Thing. And for me, um, that happened to me in my life, you know, several points, the beginning story about my dad. And, you know, obviously that was one moment. My dad actually did pass away a decade or so later. And that coincided with myself with getting divorced and with having a, my dog actually died suddenly. And it sounded like this typical country Western song of like, my dad died, my wife left, my dog died. And at the same time, I, I reframed that you know, I stopped, I stepped back, I thought, you know, wow, I'm lucky that I had my dad and had a great relationship with him. And he got these extra years from this heart transplant. And I'm really lucky that I had been married in the first place and had a 
you know, a good relationship for as long as I did. And lucky I live in a place where I can own a dog and have a dog and get that kind of companionship. And I just kind of started turning it all around into like, it's not woe is me because really once you look at the whole rest of the world, everybody's going through stuff. We all know that we don't know what the person sitting next to you or driving next to you on the freeway or whatever, everybody's going through things. It's what we do next that matters. And that to me, I think is really, really the powerful part of the, the Kintsugi or Kintsugai or however we say it, um, is, you know, taking those moments and, and really showcasing it. It's like, I didn't get here without battle wounds and those battle wounds I'm really proud of. Those made me who I am. Is there anything more embarrassing than three Midwesterners trying to properly pronounce a very <laughs> elegant and, uh, you know, just Japanese term? This is all incredibly embarrassing, but, you know, I think people get the point. Yeah. Um, but uh, going back into this idea of these negative experiences, there's a couple of things that I want to zoom in here before we uh, we wrap up. Uh, and the first of which, and I think you already partially answered this question. It's one thing, and I had this conversation, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Brad Stolberg. He's been doing the, the rounds as well with his book, Master of Change. And I recently had him on. And one of the concepts is this idea of homeostasis versus allostasis and how when you're going through something, you're not going to revert to what you were before. You're going to revert to a new version of yourself, a new version of your life. And all that's great in hindsight. But when you're in it, like when you're deep in it, like when you're literally getting bent over the cop car and being cuffed and people are looking out the window like, oh, my God, isn't that our intern? It's hard to reframe everything as positivity. Um, so hindsight can always be twenty twenty. But do you have any suggestions or thoughts for is there some reframing or question we can ask or way we can look at the experience we're in the middle of it? Or do we really need hindsight as an ingredient? Or does everything even need to be a lesson? This is something Brad talked about where he said, sometimes things just suck, right? Maybe there isn't a lesson, but how, how do you handle it when you're in it? Because you guys have been through a lot. So how do you handle it when you're in it? I mean, for me, it's just, it's very, very simple of like a, a gratitude practice or not taking something so seriously. So if something bad happens, like, I mean, a really, really, really small kind of dumb example is that like the other day my dog got sick and I was like in the middle of the night, you know, it's like three in the morning. I'm like outside with him. It's like, but, and that could have sucked. Right. But I was thinking at the time, like, oh my God, I'm just so grateful that he's alive and that he's, um, you know, my dog, like I love my dog. Um, and so you can just be grateful for the moment, even if it's a bad moment. And then also like, I really like truly try to take things not seriously. And this helps me a lot is like, if something bad happens, like when we're traveling or, you know, whatever, I think of like, like we had a, a moment when we were doing, um, when we were putting out the book where something really bad with our publisher happened. Right. And Joe and I like call each other and we just started laughing. We're like, this is ridiculous. Like, so I think it really helps if you can just laugh at things and you can try to take not everything seriously because life is short and like, you're likely going to look back on these like bad moments and laugh or like learn a lesson. And if you don't learn a lesson, then that's okay too. Yeah. And I, I think to really add to it, you know, this is really why we're so intent on sharing this message about how this can change the way you live your life. Um, if, if you're following this practice of, you know, 
building moments, as you put it, investing in experiences, as we put it, of focusing on, you know, those, the precious time we have and the relationships we have with people when those negative things happen, because, because bad things happen. So things that suck happen. And there's times when you just have to get through it and you have to stop and put it in perspective and realize that there's been terrible things that have happened throughout history to tons and tons of people. This too shall pass, right? Where you're going to get through it one way or the other. And I think that the reason that we're so intent on spreading this message is when those bad things happen, if you're living your life in this way, in this manner, it's very comforting to know that you've got this history of like, I've been using my time wisely. I've been doing all the things I wanted to do. This moment's not ideal, but I'm going to keep going. And I, I have a very, very personal story for that. And that's after we finished the first version, the first draft of the book. Um, the book was meant to come out last year, actually. And my wife was diagnosed with cancer suddenly, very unexpectedly. Um, and as you can imagine, that was absolutely extraordinarily terrifying. We have two small children. And uh, she went through all of the the steps that you go through and she's we're very fortunate she actually just finished a year of her treatments um and she's cancer free now and we're looking to the future and it was just a really really remarkable thing you know again not to not to um discount that the fear and the anxiety and the, you know all of the other things that go along with this um but while we got to the other side, we started looking at, you know, our future and it was the same as it was before the diagnosis because we had done this work. We had been really very, very, to your exact phrasing earlier, very intentional about what we were doing with our life and what we had done with the decade we'd already had together. There wasn't this like, oh my God, I we didn't do all the stuff we wanted to do yet. And we didn't plan on doing all the stuff we want to do in the future. We already had done all that. So we just had to get through this moment. And she did it. She's a you know, just an extraordinary person and a warrior. But I think to me that that's like a really powerful um, message to send people that <clears throat> if you live this way, when you're going through those hard times, those hard times are easier because you actually are filling up the rest of your time with really valuable things. So, Yeah, I, I very much appreciate you sharing that. And that was definitely uh, one of the tougher things to read about in the book, but I appreciated how open you were about all of it. And the point that I just want to emphasize again that you already shared is that if you do the work up front, when you have these life-altering experiences, whether it's your you know spouse or partner uh, gets sick, whether it's COVID and you're locked down and you're in the middle of a divorce or whatever it is, when you realize that, yes, this sucks, but I really wouldn't change anything that I'm doing, then you've clearly put in years of homework to get to that point. Because uh, I've basically built an entire business or model around people that have this massive crisis moment of, oh my God, I spent my entire life doing this thing that I don't want to do anymore. And between uh, the COVID shutdowns and now all the, the shutdowns that have happened recently in the entertainment industry, people are just having these, it's not just a midlife crisis, it's a midlife crisis doubled with an identity crisis, right? right. And when you're in the middle of these and you're asking all these questions about the way that you're living your life, you know that there's homework that needs to be done. I'm not immune to any of this, but both with the COVID shutdown and now with all the latest industry shutdowns, I ask myself the question, with all of this chaos that's happening, what would I do differently? Nothing. I would do nothing differently, right? Like it sucks. 
and you know I'm not making any money and I can't work, but it doesn't change what's on my calendar. And one of the things that I've taught uh, my students in various different ways, but it all really comes down to whether I'm teaching time management, whether I'm teaching goal setting, whether I'm teaching finances, I just get into the nitty gritty of finances and spreadsheets and whatnot. But it all comes down to is the story of your life and how you spend your time and how you spend your money in alignment with your core values. And you discovered through this latest, like it was essentially a near-death experience for your wife and your, your family unit. You're like, this sucks and this is a horrible experience, but we would change nothing. And that to me is why learning these techniques is so incredibly valuable. That's right. That's right. And that's why, you know, I I think a lot of people, some people are put off, I would say about um, the contemplating death part, but it's not that you need to, you know, constantly be thinking about your death. You just need to contemplate the finiteness of life enough to get that urgency and clarity to make those plans and to do those things. Um, because, you know, that's the one thing that's going to happen to all of us. And hopefully it will be when we're all a hundred and, and peacefully in our bed, but um, it, it most likely won't. And, you know, doing the work beforehand is just really, really, you know, the comforting factor of knowing that you squeezed it all in. Uh, So there's one more area that I want to dig into the nuances of a little bit deeper, if you'll allow me to indulge for the last few minutes of our conversation. Um, But inevitably, as I'm sure you know, from your 20,000 plus survey results, doing all of your keynote speaking, everything that you've done going around the world with all these experiences, people have no shortage of excuses. And you talk about these four big excuses, most most of which we've covered. The fact that I don't have enough time, I don't have enough money, I'm not prioritizing things, other things are a priority. But there's one that we haven't covered yet that I think is really important. And that's, but what if I try and I fail? Right? So I'm curious of all the survey results and all the conversations that you've had, how often do you find people regret things that they tried and they failed? Oh, that's almost never, like literally never. This goes just to that point of, you know, the, the Kintsugi again, it's, it's basically when you try something and it doesn't work out, you just come out the other side better, stronger. This is Bridget's story about getting arrested. Like nothing really happens. You know, she, she got the job she wanted and something bad happened. Um, th- th- that wasn't a result of her getting the job. That wasn't, <laughs> she didn't get arrested because she got the job. But when people try things, when people go and, and, you know, attempt something, you know, even I would say in, in a very specific example, of my my life as a whole, I don't believe it would be anywhere near what it is now. I wouldn't have done almost any of those things had I not tried all of these other random smaller things that gave me life experiences, that gave me the confidence to try new things like starting a business. Like, I don't think I would have done that. Um, so to me, I think that's just such a huge thing. And in the survey would really bore out those results where, you know, all the results were things that they hadn't done. And they used that excuse of having fear, but nobody said, you know, I really regret that time I X and made a fool of myself because nobody remembers that stuff or cares. It doesn't matter. I mean, the things that I wanted to do, like for, as an example, like I wanted to surf. So I learned how to surf. Am I saying that I'm like the greatest surfer in the world that I'm going to be in the Olympics? Like, no, (laughs) I'm not very good at it, but I really enjoy it. And I'm really happy that I did it because I put it off for so long because I thought I'm going to look stupid and like, I'm not going to be good at it. 
But where did that get me? Like nowhere. It get, got me like 10 years of living in Los Angeles without ever trying something that I really wanted to do. And now I'm so glad that I did it, even though I'm not good at it. Like, I think there's like this thing in our society where it's like, you have to be good at everything, but that's not, that's not real. Yeah. Like I can be bad at things and still enjoy it. Yeah. To, and, and then taking those things and actually, you know, painting the picture, like what is the worst thing that could happen versus <laughs> what is the best thing that could happen? And when you just do that little step, it's so clear, like the best things greatly outweigh the worst things, but nobody thinks like that. Everyone's just so hung up on the worst things that they don't look at the potential mm -hmm. greatness that could come out of it. I'm also, by the way, a terrible surfer. And I love surfing so much that every time I get in the water, I have an absolute blast, even though I'm not like a great surfer. And that's exactly the point of this message. You know, like you do things, you're going to realize, oh, there's a lot more fun to be had in life. Yeah, I actually think like a really interesting thing in our book, in our survey, especially is we asked people what they wanted to learn. Um, like, what are the top three things you want to learn in your lifetime, right? across all ages, across all um, income levels and across all ages, the answers were all the same. And the number one answer about if I could learn anything in the world, what would it be? It was learn a musical instrument, learn how to cook, learn a sport. Mm -hmm. and, uh, those things are all very, very cheap to do, right? It doesn't take a lot of um, money to do, but people were so afraid of what other people might think of them that they didn't even try. So I could be, you know, 75 years old and be like, man, I really wish I could have just like learned a song and guitar, but I thought people would think I'm stupid. And that's so sad. And think of how much talent is out in the world yeah. that hasn't ever been unleashed because people are afraid to even look for it. And, you know, that's part of the, you know, the treasure map, uh, the, the the description I would say of it, it isn't to um, necessarily just find your dreams. It's to rediscover your dreams, the things that you wanted for a long time. And then you just buried away and forgot about because when you're a kid, you probably were like, I want to play the guitar. I want to do the, you know, do those things. And then you just bury them. You just suppress them until they're gone. So you got to dig those back out before it's too late. Yeah, yeah, I love the idea of, of rediscovering. I think that that's great. Um, and the, the, uh, you pretty much have both already said it, but I just I wanted to put it in your own words and really quote it because I think it's one of the one of the best quotes from the entire book and uh, comes from page 50. It's yours, Bridget. And you said that people get scared because it's easier to wrap their heads around what they have to lose than what they have to gain. And that to me, if that doesn't summarize the the biggest excuse it's i think it's bigger than time and i think it's bigger than money i think those are like the sub excuses the excuse underneath the excuse is i feel like i have something to lose and i'm afraid of losing this versus what i have to gain and i am the po you guys think you're bad at surfing you should see me be an american ninja warrior trust me <laughs> i am worse at american ninja warrior than you are at being surfers right um but this was a this was one of those things that for years i would watch this on tv with my kids i'm like that would be so much fun right i bet i could do that but it was i was like nah you, that's dumb or you like award-winning dad bot i'm not going to be on the show but then there was that moment it was that choice of the fear so it wasn't i'm going to live a life without fear it was what am i more scared of trying this and endlessly failing or not trying and sitting on my deathbed, hopefully at 80 or 90 and not 59, right? But saying, 
why didn't I try this? That would have been cool. And because of it, I have years worth of experiences. I have years worth of friendships that I would never have otherwise. I have all kinds of injuries, but I've learned from those injuries, right? So that to me is the the kind of the, the perfect example of, I want to generate a life of in a collection of moments. And when I choose this goal, and like you said, I rediscovered something that I always thought was cool that I wanted to do. I'll do that someday or I'm getting too old or I couldn't do that now. Right. And it's, I've, it's for all intents and purposes, the goal itself, I'm a complete and total failure. But the amount of things that I've gotten from choosing to be okay with being a failure, I would never return any of that for any amount of money. Um, yeah, so that, that was. We have a whole chapter in the book about fear because I, I think you're exactly right. When people say things like, I don't have time, I don't have money, et cetera, maybe you don't, but is the real reason because you're afraid? Probably. I think yeah. everything is done out of love or fear. And like when you're when you have an excuse, you can always dig deeper into that excuse and you're probably going to find that you're not doing something because you're afraid. Yeah. It's- and yeah, and you're you're uh, you are an American ninja warrior. <laughs> you, you may not be the number one, but you did that thing. You can say it. Like the person that finishes the marathon last finished a marathon. They ran a marathon. You know that they don't even care if they ran it. They they did it. They completed a marathon. So whatever you're trying to do in life, it's just so important to get out and try it and to make those lists of those things you want to do. And you might, by the way, find out you don't like stuff. You know, I tried stuff in our crazy experiential quest of things that I don't, you know, like, but I don't regret trying them. I I know now and I've discovered things that I thought I would never like that I'm like, oh my God, actually I love that. That was really cool. And now I'm like more interested in something that I would have never imagined because I decided to try it. So yeah, I mean, Sam, it's like, look at like during COVID, I, um, I bought a bunch of canvases and I like started painting and I like basically decorated my, my place with like things that I had painted during that time that I was like really, you know, depressed. And, but I like, you know, put my feelings into just painting. I mean, like, I can promise you, like, MoMA is not calling me to, like, feature my... (laughs) (laughs) But it was such a fun, cool, creative experience. And, And on our survey, there was hundreds of people that said... I wish that I would have learned how to paint. And it's like, it's literally the easiest thing in the world is to just go to the store and get, or go on Amazon and get a canvas, get some paint and like do it and spend like a day like learning and doing that. And like, you're not going to regret it, but people are so afraid to even try because they think that they're not going to be, you know, amazing at it. Well, I've gotten through about 5% of my preparation document today, as I anticipated would be the case, uh, but I want to be very respectful of your time. So before we wrap up, is there any important or vital message that we have not shared yet that you want to use to wrap up today's conversation? Because we barely scratched the surface of all of the value that you have in your book and your experiences. Oh, I think we're, I think we've got it pretty well covered. You know, we just really hope that people will take this message to heart and we'll really, you know, let it, let it marinate, you know, really think about what's at stake that, you know, your time is really your most valuable resource. And that's what you need to be focused on investing in is your time. Yeah, I love that. If there's anything that this conversation inspired you or anyone that's listening to this to do, like, please let us know. Please reach out to us. We love hearing this stuff. 
Well, yeah. I can already tell you we've got a family game night that's going to be coming up. That's going to be because I went through that one exercise, even though it was like homework, because I got to prep for the, the podcast interview. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to get some use out of this just like anybody else would. And we're going to be having a family game night because I specifically read your book. Um, so in order for people to reach out and learn more about your life and your experiences and your book and share the experiences that they have because you influence them, shameless self-promotion portion of the program where do I send our listeners and our viewers to find you and find your book? You can find us on Instagram at Experiential Billionaire. Um, our websites are BridgetHilton.com, JoeHuff.com, and ExperientialBillionaire.com. And Amazon, of course, as well. Um, yes, for, I've heard of that. I hear that's a good place to, to buy things. Yeah. And the so almighty Amazon. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, it'd be very so, interesting to see what Jeff Bezos' re uh, responses would be to your survey. <laughs> yes, yes. My guess is they would, be, they would be pretty similar to everybody else's. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I can't thank you enough for uh, helping to create this experience today of this fantastic 90-minute conversation. And hey, if you're both local... And uh, you want to come out and you want to see a 13-year-old haunted uh, house project, you're more than welcome and, and uh, invited. So, love uh, to. Awesome. Yep. On that note, thank you so much. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.